Hello. Welcome to Grace's Class Sass and Power podcast. I'm your host, also director, writer, producer, and developer of the podcast, Grace Dowling. Coming to you live from Bullock Hall for this very special introductory episode. So you may be wondering, why use a podcast format to talk about readings and think through them? And, well, I can't say that I listen to many podcasts myself, because I don't, but I do like the idea of making one, and so this kind of is a way for me to test out how making a podcast would work, while also, you know, thinking through and processing um, my understanding of, of all the readings we've done. So yeah, that's kind of why, I, why I'm in this. Um, I hope you enjoy listening to it. I hope it doesn't end up being too long. I can talk for a long time, that I know. But I will try to be brief and concise in my, um, in my words here. So the way that I figured I would structure these podcasts is to kind of just talk about connections that I've made in the class, between the readings, between the material that we've talked about, um, just other things that I've been thinking about. Yeah, and so let's let's get started. Um, so one thing that I noticed recently in, in the more recent readings was this kind of interesting contradiction between like the way that wealthy people act and what they actually do. So, you know, the, the difference between what they say and what they do. Um, according to Jarnus and Friedman's piece, and also also the introduction in chapter one of The Privileged Poor by Anthony Abram Jack. Um, yeah, so, you know, the contradiction here is kind of just, like, the fact that wealthy people downplay the importance of class difference by presenting egalitarian sort of attitudes, while also at the same time making sure to distinguish themselves on the basis of class and when I say distinguish themselves, I mean, you know, the ways that they flex their, um, flex their, their stat, their class status. So, you know, making a connection to class today, if we're talking about, um, Weber's meaning, Weber's components of life chances, uh, for, for displaying their kind of class, it's, it's, wealthy people display their class and they also use um their status they kind of flex their status by consuming certain goods and representing certain styles of life and kind of making those um doing those things knowing that those things are like inaccessible and knowing that those things because they're societally defined are going to distinguish them in terms of status and in terms of class uh, so basically just the idea that that wealthy people always like to downplay the importance of class difference while also at the same time, you know, their actions, what they do, what they consume, the way that they consume, those kinds of things themselves reaffirm the importance of class difference to them on the inside. Um, you know, like I think an example in, in the reading we did uh of Anthony Abraham Jack, the way that people would talk about their vacation homes and their um, private jet trips and like 
wear their North Face jackets so proudly and stuff. Um, just, well, at the same time, like, probably being in studying at a progressive institution that tries to be, that, like, claims to make its students aware of, like, class difference and stuff. Um, and, you know, reading, reading Jack's piece, reading the first two chapters, I felt like I was kind of, it, it was, it was almost like, like, I related pretty easily to, um, to the experience of the privileged poor, not in their, not in their class necessarily, because I am not a poor person, and I am not trying to claim that I am. I have a lot of privilege in going to Clark anyway, and if we're talking about his classifications of people, I would definitely be in the upper income group, but even still, you know, the kind of culture shock that the privileged poor experienced going to their elite high schools and things before going to college, reading about that, I was kind of, I felt kind of seen almost just because um, my experience in high school was kind of similar to that, where I came from a very underfunded middle school in the middle of the Bronx, and then I went to um, a high school you have to like take a test to get into and do an interview for and it was it was very much an elite institution even though it was still a public school uh just the process of it and the opportunities that you get there um all of that is very elite and so going into that school coming from a very like underfunded school where I was kind of in the I was definitely in like the the upper uh, upper income group in my middle school going to a high school where I was just exposed to um, people who had been who had just levels of privilege that I couldn't even imagine before like like I didn't know that people had houses in Manhattan you know like I didn't know that that happened um, and then I got there and you know the friends that I made right away just all of them seemed to be very I mean you read my first essay in intro to sociology about a class difference in different classes. I was really proud of that title, by the way. I still am. I don't think I've written a better title than that. If I do publish a book on that, which I don't think I will, you know, it would st- I would stick with that title. But anyway, you know, in there I kind of break down the way that I felt isolated from my high school friends on the basis of class. And so that, to me, was like I was going through that experience that the privileged poor were going through when they entered their elite institutions. But, you know, like them, going into Clark, going to college, I was already so much more accustomed to the, like, kinds of flashy sorts of wealth that you encounter at college. But at the same time, like, I don't know if this is common for the experience of the privileged poor, because he hasn't gone into this yet, but um, I, I made a very conscious effort going into college to, like, befriend people that are more similar to me class-wise because I think to me that's it's such a matter of comfort and just relatability you know like if you if you never had to ever worry about money in your life I just don't think that there's anything that could really um anything I could meaningfully relate to you about you know like there are obviously other things that I have in common with people But at the end of the day, like, your class determines so much about you. It determines so much about the prospects that you have for your future. I would just feel so frustrating being surrounded by people that would not not understand, like, my concerns about 
my future and um, the kinds of change that I want to bring about in the world. Um, so I, I do want, I wonder what, if, if Jack will get into that in the future chapters, um, because I think that that's, it's interesting. I want to know if the privileged poor also, like me, kind of took a similar path of trying to avoid people that, um, that they couldn't, that they didn't have their class in common with. Um, but yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's like interesting when you think about the contradictions of the, um, the behavior of the wealthy and their actual attitudes on the inside, because you think about that and you, it's like, it's easy to say that they're classist and that's, it's kind of clear, like they're harboring very classist attitudes. Uh, but at the same time, like, I don't even know how much blame I can place on them for having those attitudes because those kinds of things are so deeply ingrained just into our society, you know, like, that's why we have a class called class, status, and power, because this is a structural issue. Um, so it is kind of hard for me to, you know, to say, like, okay, I want to avoid people that are not from my class background because I can't relate to them, but at the same time, you know, knowing that it's not technically like their individual fault necessarily that they are not aware of their internal classism um because it's such a structural issue and you know when we look at like legitimizing myths which is something we talked about in one of my other classes called social psychology of intergroup violence oppression and liberation which really uh is quite the title there i've been shortening it to spivel when i talk about it um, but anyway, yeah, so that's, we've talked about these things called legitimizing myth, myths, which um, basically it's just, you know, it's what they sound like. They're myths that legitimize certain things, especially inequality. Um, and it's stuff like the myth of meritocracy and like uh, the, the, what is it? Um, the Protestant ethic, the Protestant work ethic from last semester, you know, the idea that if you work hard, like you will get far and stuff like that, like, those kinds of myths are so prominent in our society that, um, it kind of is ingrained within you that classism is fair and acceptable, uh, and it's, it's, these things are not just reinforced by, like, popular myths, but also by academia, like, you look at what Davis and Moore were saying about the importance of stratification and all the ways that, like, poor people, that, that poverty helps other people in the way that it's, you know, beneficial to society, like, however messed up that is, if you were to read that text, and when I'm saying you, I really mean me, like, if I were to read that text, and I had no prior knowledge of, you know, class structural issues, and I wasn't at, like, a liberal arts institution like Clark, if I was to read that, I would, you know, I would have to think about it for a little while before immediately dismissing it, but, like, it would, it would take some time, it's, especially when you're reading that kind of material in, like, an academic setting, it's um it's hard to dismiss it right away because it's it's coming from such esteemed sources which i think um you know at a lot of institutions i don't think that they consider like the background of of the authors of the text that they're reading enough um and it's you know it's important because like if you don't consider who davis and moore are and how they might be biased based on their background like you're you might slip into a viewing them as objective sources, which is obviously problematic given that their writing is anything but objective. Um, and, but if you view it as objective, like, you could easily kind of accept their argument and say, oh, well, you know, 
poverty is acceptable because other people depend on it, you know? And the poor people, if they really wanted to not be poor, they would work harder and stuff like that, you know? Like, those kinds of things, those myths and those, um, the, like, academia that reinforces those myths are just so dangerous and they kind of work in an intertwined fashion, it seems like. Um, and just a side note about Davison Moore... I really enjoyed reading that piece because, as I as I mentioned in my email, I think, when I submitted my response for that piece, it was just so, so fun to read it and immediately just disagree with everything that they said. Um, and there were just, there were so many things that I didn't approve of in what they said that, like, if you were just reading it, reading their argument passively, and you kind of didn't think about the sources again, like, you could kind of start to accept this stuff and not really understand how deeply flawed it is. Um, you know, like, like if you, if you took apart their argument, there are some things that you could agree with without really thinking about it. Like, especially the note, um, about, you know, there are a few people talented enough to hold certain positions and for these positions that require extra talent, you know, they require more training, and so you need to compensate people more for that training. Like, that in itself is not necessarily a really ob- objectionable thing. Like, f- a few people in the world are talented. Like, yeah, that can kind of be true. Like, I guess it, if talent really was... If everyone had talent, then, you know, what would talent even mean? So by nature of talent being a thing, like, it needs to be, like, a, a scarce kind of situation. Um, and, oh, okay, so you can accept that, I guess, and then, you know, you need training for certain positions, like, that's, that's just true, you do need training for certain positions, and, um, you know, if you're thinking, okay, you need training, you need talent, so you need more compensation, you know, like, if, if you're talented, if you have, if you have to go through more training, like, you need more compensation in order to be encouraged to do those things, it's like, yeah, okay, that can kind of make sense, which, and it's like it's it's dangerous because those ideas you can agree with them and um but then you you see like Tuman's response and it's it's so much it's so easy to see the ways that that's flawed if you really just think about it for a few more minutes like first of all like how would you measure anyone's talent um how how would you determine whether like talent was like there's talent in different fields you know like everything everything can kind of be called a talent. It's like, what kind of talent are you even looking for for certain positions? Like, that's important to specify, too. Um, And, you know, the idea that, like, training is something that isn't worth anything without the monetary compensation. Like, training also provides you a lot of skills and a lot of advantage in life, and so does talent. So having those two things already, having access to those things is like a privilege in itself. So you know, why are you rewarding privileged people for being privileged for no fault of their own, or no, through no effort of their own, um, so yeah, but this is all just to say, I think it's, it's interesting to see, like, the formation of classist attitudes in these myths and in these theories of stratification, um, and it, it makes it even harder to like blame individuals for having classist attitudes when you see just how much of a structural, systematic issue it is. Um, but at the same time, you know, you could say on the other hand, well, this is the information age. Like everyone kind of has information at at the tips of their fingers, and 
everyone has access to unlearning that kind of stuff. Um, but it's like the kind of thing where if you are not exposed to that, like if you don't know that classism is bad because these things are so deeply ingrained into you, how can you possibly be blamed for not taking the step to like research things and unlearn your internalized classism? Because if you don't know it's a bad thing, like why would you ever, why would you unlearn it in the first place, you know? Um, I think it's really, it's, it's like reading these pieces, is, it's just something where I wish that I could suggest them to my old friends in high school just really subtly and kind of see what they think about it because I think um and I'm sure I'm not saying that I'm like blameless because I, I'm sure everyone including myself has internalized classism um but I think it's just it's it's interesting because like the people that I knew and I'm sure the people that the privileged poor interact with at their like progressive elite colleges too like they they're supposed to be the people that are like at the forefront of social movements and that are like on the right side of things like this and always woke and aware and whatever um and those were definitely like my friends in high school as well so it's kind of it's like it's not enough to be aware of social issues on the surface like you really have to confront yourself and confront um all of these internalized things that you may not be aware of. Uh, so that's something I, I, I try to do, and I'm, I'm sure this class is already helping me with that, but it's something I, I hope to, like, encourage in those around me as well. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's also interesting to think about, like, how much knowledge people have of their own internalized classism because, you know, on, on one hand, like I was saying, like, can you really be blamed for it if it's a structural issue? But at the same time, you know, how could you not be aware of it if you're in, like, the atmosphere, like, you are at a liberal arts kind of school where you're, you are talking about this stuff? Like, how can you not be thinking about your own internalized classism? And, like, is there a part of you that that justifies that classism because it's to your benefit to justify it? especially as, like, a wealthy individual, um, as wealthy individuals, like, it's, it's to their benefit that they think that classism is justified, so, like, they may be ignorant of their own internalized classism, but I guess I'm wondering, you know, how much of that ignorance is created by themselves to, to an extent, you know, like, how much of that ignorance is genuine, and how much of it is just, like, if I start to question the system, everything that I've earned suddenly becomes, like, meaningless, and suddenly it's clear that my classism is the only reason that I'm, like, maintaining my wealth and power, um, because obviously, like, wealth is dependent on the poverty of others, like, we saw that in, in Gans's piece, The Positive Functions of Poverty, like, he kind of states that, like, you know, the wealth of people, it's not just, it doesn't come from nowhere, like, it's a, pro- it's a product of, of poverty, like, that is the positive function of poverty, is that poverty enables other people to be wealthy, and other people to have power, um, and, you know, so it's like, it's to, to people's own benefit to be unaware of their internalized classism, but that, does that really, 
does that mean that they're blameless for being unaware or is there like a part of them that is actually aware and like actively suppressing their uh their consciousness of this kind of thing um kind of returning returning to the idea that that wealth is not justified or deserved like i i think that's kind of something that's been um implied in everything I've been saying so far, so I feel like it's important to address that, too. Um, And I think, you know, the piece that Mills wrote about the power elite really illustrates that very clearly for me. It's it's the way that Mills talks about the power elite um, and what exactly gives the power elite their, well, their power. That, to me, is very indicative of, of the idea that wealth is not justified or deserved. Like, it's institutions that give people this power and that enable people to acquire such wealth. It's nothing in their merit or their character personally. It's just the power that society, that the institutions give them. And I think it's important to clarify too, like what institutions specifically the power elite exist within. Um, To me, you know, reading that piece, I was very interested in that and according to Mills like it's the the major institutions that serve as the most powerful centers of our society that you know that host these power elite and are led by them is you know the economic political and military domains and I I I, I don't know when I was reading this piece and now that I'm thinking back on it I keep thinking back to um whenever I'm driving to or from Worcester, which, to clarify, I can't drive. I have my permit, but I, I can't actually drive yet. But whenever I'm being driven to Worcester or from Worcester, we always pass by, um, like, Sarkovsky or something. Uh, yeah, it's like, um, there's, there's one military arms manufacturer, I think that manufactures helicopters or something, um, and we always pass by like a sign for them, and it's it's a company made by Lockheed Martin, which you probably know, but it's the biggest, like the most expensive, or the the company that's worth most in terms of military weapons manufacturers, um, and it's just like I feel like whenever I I drive past that, I'm just kind of reminded of how important the military is and in like in our society and in everyone's lives really like it's it's not something that I think about often but every time I see that sign for their company and their you know their manufacturing center it's like I'm reminded again of the far-reaching effect of like our ridiculous military spending like the fact that I pass by this this place in Connecticut like very random random location every time I'm, you know, going to or from school, it just kind of is disturbing to see that so out in the open. Um, And I guess it's disturbing because I don't want to think about, like, how much we spend on our military budget. Like, it's just, it's outrageous and not all needed. Um, But it's it's one of those things that that I was thinking about when I was doing that reading. Um, But, yeah, so kind of thinking about those institutions that guide the power elite and the way that they're structured so purposefully to, you know, have such a rigid hierarchy within and to have such a concentration of power at the very top. 
um, you know, like on the smaller scale, I guess, within those institutions on their own, like that's where the power elite start to like rise up. Like that's where they come from. It's at the top of those kinds of um, institutions. And I think it's interesting, like what institutions they are, first of all, like the fact that it's the economy, politics, and the military, that's, you know, those three things are, like, the most American institutions ever, you know, you, we don't prioritize education or religion or, like, any sort of communal, creative kind of thing, it's, like, our priorities are where the most powerful people reside, and it's the military and in politics and in the economy, those are the things we prioritize over anything, um, and when, when I'm thinking about political power in particular and the way that that plays a role in our society, like, I've, I've been thinking a lot about, um, in my Intro to Gov class, we've, we've been talking about the, the way, like, the origin, the origin story of, yeah, the origin story, essentially, of our, of the American government. And what we've been reading and talking about is, like, the, the roots that we have in two different spheres of, like, classic liberalism and Puritan sort of communitarianism. And it's like those two competing forces were uh, the main influences for, like, the creation of our government. And it's just interesting to think about how those two things have been at odds within American history for for all of American history, and they continue to be at odds still and it's easy to see which side is kind of winning right now because obviously communitarianism is more progressive more community focused people-led democratic um and the classic liberalism is just like you know when you think of our neoliberal state like that's that's the influence right there it's like the free market over everything and individual freedom is most important um and it's just, it's interesting doing those readings and then thinking about, like, what we're talking about in class status and power because, um, you know, it's it's easy for me to just hate rich people and to kind of just look down on them for acting in ways that I deem to be immoral, you know, like prioritizing themselves and, um, you know, playing the game of the capitalist system. But when I think about the way that our country was founded and the just how far back the classic liberal influence goes it's kind of harder to say okay these people are wrong for being selfish or these people are wrong for being classist when these kinds of ideas have really been baked into our society since the very beginning of our country you know like what i think is wrong which is you know being selfish and harboring classism and like intentionally disguising it and stuff like that like I think that that's very clearly wrong and selfish but that's because I'm thinking within a communitarian sort of framework of like this is unsustainable for the community everyone deserves an equal shot at things Uh, we need to work towards like a more equitable society whatever like I'm judging them based on my priorities and my priorities are just on the opposite end of the spectrum there whereas they're kind of thinking from a classic liberal perspective of like prioritizing themselves and working hard you can get anywhere and stuff like that and it's like if that's where they're coming from how who am I to say and how can I say that they're wrong because 
I'm, you know, very much judging them by my standards in doing that. Um, which is not to say that, like, that I still, that I'm, you know, giving them any credit, giving, like, the wealthy any credit for being wealthy and for not, you know, being egalitarian and everything, because I'm not. But I guess what I'm saying is, you know, taking the intro to gov class, seeing the origins of our government, um, and thinking about that in the context of this class as well, it makes it a lot easier for me to, like, remember that there is no, like, objective right or wrong in the situation of, of, like, class conflict. Like, there is no, like, you know, we all deserve equality 100% for sure, because that's not, like, an objective sort of argument. That's still baked into, um, ideology, and, like, people's ideologies are different, and for some people, that would be, like, a wrong argument to make, or that's unfair, or whatever, but for other people, it, that, that's, you know, like me, like, that's what I see as the only way forward, um, so it's just, it's just been interesting, I think all of these things, like, all of these readings, um, especially, like, Gaventa's piece, too, about the, the, like, power structure of our society, and, and how that, like, feeds into um, inequality and reinforces kind of stratification, like, you know, the idea that powerlessness is inherent in our stratification system, like, it's, um, it's, like, something that's ensured, like, there has to be someone that's powerless, because that's kind of how any system would work, because power is derived from powerlessness, um, yeah, but, but those kinds of things, like, thinking about power and class in this class, and thinking about, um, about the government origins in my intro to gov class, like, I feel like all of that has been kind of on my mind, um, and provoking me to think not necessarily less critically of, like, people that are different from me, like, when I say different, I kind of mean just have different perspectives on those issues, like, different class takes and different, um, economic backgrounds and everything, but really just to kind of consider their perspective more, because I think these these classes and these readings have given me more context for that, if that makes sense. Um, you know, like, I'm not going to suddenly change my political views or anything or whatever, but I think it's important to to keep these different ideas in mind and to remember that objective that there is no like objective truth here. There is no objective um, way to fix class issues or anything. Um, it's important to just remember where everyone is coming from and remember like the political historical roots of people's ways of thinking and also the way that that plays out in shaping our current class and power structure today. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, that's, those are the things that have been on my mind lately. I hope you enjoyed listening. If you didn't, you know, maybe next time you will. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll see you in class.